Good morning, everyone. I'm Deb Detweiler, and that was the Women's World Music Choir. We sang several Inuit chants that were gathered from field recordings of the far north, so up close to Alaska. And you probably heard that there were several chants going on at the same time and that they didn't always line up. And that's one of the things that the Inuit people love is what's called heterorhythms, multiple rhythms that don't necessarily coincide. And one of the things that the chants and the sounds grow out of is the sounds and the melodies of the outdoors, the wind, the water, the movement of the animals. And so we sing that this morning to honor uh, the native peoples and to open this convocation. Good morning, all. And welcome to this special convocation to observe Indigenous Peoples Day here at Goshen College for the first time ever. Thank you, Dr. Detweiler and the Women's World Music Choir for blessing our time with this opening music. My name is Jonathan Schramm, and I teach in the Sustainability and Environmental Education Department, which is based out at Mary Lee. I'm an ecologist and an educator, and although I don't, to my knowledge, have any Native American blood in my veins, I love this land of my birth and long to become ever more at home here. I'll be joined this morning up front by several students, two graduate students in environmental education who are studying this year at Mary Lee, Emily Hain and Terry Habig, and one undergraduate student who you might see more often around campus, Erica Ewing. Erica was part of a group of students who last year at this time first advocated to the college that we observe this day. You'll get to hear a little bit more from each of them shortly. We are gathered this morning to meet on good land, land that has nourished humans for countless generations. This land is part of the traditional home of the Potawatomi people who despite centuries of violence, displacement, and loss, persist and grow on this landscape. For most of us in this room, our roots are shorter in this place, whether our families have been here for generations or if we've just come here for school. In other words, this land, this place, is like almost all places on Earth. It has a complex story of human loss and pain, as well as human creativity and hope. As we seek to live in deeper and more honest relationship with each other in this place, we have to be forthright about this history of force and loss and the legacies that is left on the land. But at the same time, all of us share the call and responsibility to live with sustaining wisdom here. It's these twin themes that we'll be exploring together this morning. I've heard it said that a good, good beginning in acknowledging the indigenous history of your home whether it's here in Goshen or anywhere else in the Americas, is to ask three questions. Who lived here? What happened to them on this land? And where are they now? Together, seeking answers to those questions can lead us to start understanding the complicated history of our places and perhaps open our eyes to a more nuanced present than we often assume is there. So let's follow this process for this spot where we are right now here at the Church Chapel of Goshen College. And my thanks to Luke Gasho, Executive Director out at Mary Lee, for making a number of the following slides. So if you've ever taken a US history course, 
you might have come across a map that looked something like this. The land in brown towards the eastern third of the continent would have been that that was controlled by the newly arrived uh, United States of America after the War of Independence from Great Britain. And the other large colorful blobs moving west across the continent represent territories that were treated or ceded over to the US uh, throughout the next hundred or so years, um, sometimes through war, sometimes through purchase. But this very simple map betrays a deeper reality that was also happening at the same time in those places. And there's a fascinating project titled The Invasion of America that I would encourage you to check out on your own. Um, you can see in all of the areas in blue on this map of the United States are areas for which Dr. Claudio Sant and his team in, at Georgia um, did the research to put together the treaty documents in detail for every place in the, the blue regions of the US. So if your home place is on the eastern, eastern side of the Appalachians or southern Texas, a bit of North Dakota, then that information isn't on this map, but lots of other places are, and I would encourage you to explore around here a little bit. Let's take a look at what happens here. When we look at the transitions across the United States um, in this context, Each of the vanishing areas represents land that was written over by treaty to the United States government from all of the Indian Native American tribes that lived in this area at that time. You can see northern Indiana, still controlled by the Potawatomi. Now it's not, 1830s, remember those dates. Thanks, Nathan. If any of you have had a chance to do the Losing Turtle Island activity with, um, this is a project of Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery, which is a project within MCUSA, um, it very much gives you a visceral feeling of what this loss of land was like. So looking closer to where we are now, here's a, a simplified map of the treaty relationships that happened in the state of Indiana. And you can see that over a period of about 40 years, all of the land that we now call Indiana was ceded by a variety of tribes over to the US government. Of course, we're here in the very northern tier of Indiana. Here's a slightly different map showing that same thing, but now zoomed in a little bit closer to where we are. And you can see some of those same treaty relationships are there, but they're also, as you look at this scale, a number of small parcels, the little colored rectangles within the other shapes, that represent areas that were held out of many of these treaties for somewhat longer periods of time. So a given treaty might have ceded a large chunk of land, and it might have been 15 or 20 years before the last bits of that land were actually taken out of Native American hands. Usually that was because of a village presence there, or often um, a Native American, usually woman, had been married to a white American settler. Goshen straddles a line between two different treaties that were actually about seven years apart. The green one on the north end of the city of Goshen was signed in 1821, and it extends much further up into Michigan. Um, and then seven years later, in 1828, was kind of the definitive treaty that 
signed over everything in, the, in that case, the orange shape from the Potawatomi to the United States, and including the land on which Goshen College now sits. Here's a closer view of that exact parcel. Um, and interestingly, this also contains the land that we now call Mary Lee. So both Mary Lee and Goshen, despite our 30 miles of distance separating us, are uh, controlled by the same treaty. Here's a little bit of what these treaties actually look like. You don't need to read every word on this, but this is a transcription of the treaties. They're remarkably short in text, given how much land was being talked about here. The green box, the top box, represents the description of the actual parcel. So this is the text describing the shape we just saw on the map. The lower box in orange is an interesting one because it describes the payment that the US government was going to make to the Potawatomi for that. Uh, some of it was cash payments that would be distributed yearly for many years to come. Others were sometimes payments in goods. The very last paragraph has an interesting statement. The sum of $7,500 shall be expended for the said tribe, but they'll have to spend it under the direction of the President of the United States to clear and fence land, to erect houses, to purchase domestic animals and farming utensils. So it was clear that if the Native Americans were to stay in this land, they, they should be doing so as farmers. That was the pretty clear indication of that treaty language. One other important stipulation that happened in this treaty, and the green box at the bottom there, there were a few areas that were held out, again, as I mentioned, for members of the tribe. Um, but it was clear in the treaty language that no Potawatomi could occupy their lands on the Elkhart Prairie or five miles or within five miles of that spot. We'll learn a little bit more about the Elkhart Prairie shortly. Um, that is essentially right where we are. It was rich, beautiful farmland, at least that was the potential for it, so it was seen as highly valued. Just to get a, a scope, a scale for the number of people that signed on to the treaty on the left would be uh, Potawatomi tribal members, and on the right, witnessed by uh, 10 white Americans. That was 1828. Just after that came an important piece of legislation in American history called the Indian Removal Act. And it was signed under Andrew Jackson's presidency. Um, you can read a little bit of the language there. Uh, I highlighted a couple parts that might be especially pertinent. But essentially this was a way that uh, the US government in power at that time was able to say, we think Native Americans would be best served if they're moved west of the Mississippi so that everything east of that can become settled land. They'll be happier, white Americans will be happier. This is the rationale for this act that ended up spawning a decade of tremendous changes. Um, in the southeastern United States, the Trail of Tears arise, arose out of this particular time period. Here, in the, again, in this part of the world, we um, saw the Potawatomi being forced to move out, again, some seven or eight years after the signing of this Indian Removal Act. There was a years filled with tension there. Um, but this is a, an image of 1837, a council between the Potawatomi and representatives of the US government trying to negotiate a way that the Potawatomi could leave peacefully. A year later, they uh, traveled on what is now known as the Trail of Death. Um, less well-known nationally than the Trail of Tears, but this is a very similar process. About 850 Potawatomi were force-marched from this part of northern Indiana to eastern Kansas. 
and over 40 people died on that march, many of them young children. Here's an impression of that time by a Potawatomi artist. And another drawing um, done by an American accompanying this expedition, this trail of death. Here he's sketching a, a church service that was held for the Potawatomi as they passed through um, Vincennes, which is in southwestern Indiana. And what did they leave after the Potawatomi were forced out? Well, they left that coveted Elkhart Prairie. So this map is um, from the period just after the Trail of Death. And our area, again, the spot on which we now stand, is inside this red box close to where the green arrow is pointing. Here, uh, modern imagery is superimposed over that. And you can see running right down north and south through the middle of the diagram, it's labeled Indian Trail. And it passes right through this Elkhart Prairie. So this is an important resource, again, that people have been noting for, for uh, decades, even centuries. And that trail runs essentially right between us and the campus of Greencroft Goshen. One of the early white Americans who was looking to settle in this area had his eyes on the Elkhart Prairie, as did a number of other people. I, this little passage caught my eye because as he and his family were traveling through what's called, what's now Bonneville Mill, just in the north part of Elkhart County, a large prairie wolf started out and ran across our path. I think about that often because Mary Lee is on Wolf Lake and Bear Lake, and those animals existed in that part of the country all the way up into the 1860s. Oops. So as the land was carved up into smaller and smaller parcels and settled by for farming, um, this is now where we sit, again, on Goshen's campus. Here's a, an image of one of the farms that would have been right in this area, something what the landscape might have looked like 150 years ago here. Don't you wish that the trains were that long now? Like four cars. And the last piece, just to illustrate the depth of change here in this landscape, was population data from our county drawn by the US Census, beginning in 1850, 1860, they only had two categories, white and colored. Um, 1870, they expanded that to have two different ways of talking about the people that lived in Elkhart County. Were they native or were they foreign? Or were they white or were they colored? Um, the native is a pretty high number which might lead you to believe by 1870 that actually just means native-born U.S. citizens. They're not talking about Native Americans there. So as you can see, it was an intense and pivotal 30 years or so in the early 1800s that, that shaped the direction of human lives in this small part of Elkhart County. There was nothing empty about this land when the first larger waves of uh, European-American settlers came. It only appeared that way because of federal actions just a few years before. One modern author who's written about this uprooting effect on her people is Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's a member of what's now called the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. A talented botanist, she shares in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, an extended comparison of her ancestors making a communal decision to the communal behavior of a grove of pecan trees. You see, the trail of death wasn't the only removal the Potawatomi were subjected to. 30 years after that experience, they were again essentially urged to move by the government, this time from Kansas, where the Trail of Death had taken them, to Oklahoma, 
and this time with the promise of individual rather than communally held property allotments. Sorry, let's not do that one quite yet, Nathan. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm Terry Habig, and I am a graduate student studying environmental education at Mary Lee. I wanted to share with you an excerpt from Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer, and the chapter is from the Council of Pecans. The federal government's Indian removal policies were wretched many native peoples from our homelands. It separated us from traditional knowledge and life ways, the bones of our ancestors, our sustaining places. But even this did not distinguish identity. So the government tried new tools, separating children from their families and cultures, sending them far away to school. Long enough, they hoped, to make them forget who they were. Children, language, lands, almost everything was stripped away, stolen. In the face of such loss, one thing our people could not surrender was the meaning of the land. In the settler mind, land was property, real estate, capital, or natural resources. But to our people, it was everything, identity, the connection to our ancestors, the home of our non-human kinfolk, our pharmacy, our library, the sources of all that sustained us. Our lands were where our responsibility to the world was enacted, sacred ground. It belonged to itself. It was a gift, not a commodity, so it could never be bought or sold. The land held in common gave people strength, and so, in the eyes of the federal government, that belief was a threat. Our leaders were offered the American dream, the right to own property as an individual, inviolate from the vagaries of shifting Indian policy. They'd never be forced off their lands again. All they had to do was agree to surrender their allegiances to land held in the common and agree to private property. Stay in Kansas on communal land and run the risk of losing it all, or go to the Indian Territory as individual landowners with a legal guarantee. Our families packed the wagon one more time and moved west to Indian Territory to become the citizen Potawatomi. Every tribal member was given title to an allotment of land the government deemed sufficient for making a living as a farmer. By accepting citizenship, they ensured that their allotment would not be taken away from them, unless of course, a citizen could not pay his taxes, or a rancher offered a keg of whiskey and a lot of money. 
During the allotment era, more than two-thirds of the reservation lands were lost to our people. Barely a generation after land was guaranteed through the sacrifice of common land converted to private property, most of it was gone. Again, from Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, our people were canoe people until they made us walk, until our lakeshore lodges were signed away for shanties and dust. Our people were a circle until they made us disperse. Our people shared a language with which to thank the day until they made us forget. But we didn't forget, not quite. Good morning, everyone. My name is Emily Hain, and I'm a graduate student of Goshen College studying environmental education. As we work to comprehend the history of the Potawatomi people in this area, I want to reflect on language and how it contributes greatly to deepening relationships with people and the earth. I'm originally from Minnesota in a town called Matamidae. It comes from two Dakota words, meaning gray bear, motto, and lake, midae. But there is so much more to know about a place than its name. I grew up in the land of snow and lakes, and during summer months learned to love the wetland behind my house, where the cattails grew and snapping turtles lay. More recently, I lived in northern Wisconsin, surrounded by forests and eastern hemlock, white pine, and bogs with tamarack trees. After three years living there, I learned the language of the land, listening to the morning sounds of autumn leaves falling and night sounds of coyotes yipping just as the sun departed below the tree line. But my favorite sound of this place occurred in late April, waking up under the stars in my hammock to hear simultaneously a call of the loon and the lake's ice breaking after four months of frozen water. I came to call this place home, and I reflected on what it means to share a home with people, animals, plants, both past and present. At this home, I was blessed to hear the language and stories of the Anishinaabe people of northern Wisconsin, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and northern Minnesota. What stands out to me today about the Ojibwe language is how it reflects the land. Jerry Jandro, an Ojibwe native living in Michigan, shared with an audience of students and educators, myself included, that the sounds of his native language is the sound of water and the land, the sound of babbling brooks and water rolling over rocks. During his presentation, Jerry greeted us and continued to speak to us in Ojibwe. As he spoke, I closed my eyes and listened to the native language that I had never heard before. Just as Jerry described, the words I heard him speak sounded like the water and the land. As I listened, the Ojibwe language unearthed my own memories, looking for fish in rivers, skimming rocks on the Great Lakes, and dipping a canoe paddle into a lake as the sky grayed and the rain fell. I moved from my home in northern Wisconsin to Indiana in July to begin the environmental education graduate program at Mary Lee. I remember asking myself soon after moving here, the languages of the Miami and Potawatomi people sound like the land of Indiana. How will I ever know? I asked myself these questions when I walked through the prairies at Mary Lee and heard the flowers rustling in the warm summer breeze, birds tripping in the distance, and crickets jumping from the wild carrot plants into the thicket of big blue stem grasses. Again, I asked myself, do the languages of the Miami and Potawatomi people sound like the land and of Indiana? How will I ever know? 
To lend some guidance, here's an excerpt from Kimmerer's book. She states, the Potawatomi and Anishinaabe languages are a reflection of the land and the people. They are living oral tradition which had not been written down in their long history until fairly recently. Further sharing about stories and languages, Kimmerer says, a people's story moves along like a canoe caught in the current, being carried closer and closer to where we have begun. As I grew up, my family found again the tribal connection that had been frayed, but never broken by history. We found the people who knew our true names, and when I first heard the old language, I heard it as if in my father's voice. The language was different, but the heart was the same. The last time I saw Jerry, he was holding his infant daughter. He talked about how he wants his children to know the Ojibwe language, as it holds so much knowledge and meaning for their people. To connect indigenous people and future generations to their cultures and traditions, communities around the Great Lakes region are establishing language schools. Here's a story about an Ojibwe language school in northern Wisconsin and its efforts to revitalize language and culture. The film is attributed to the Wisconsin Media Lab and the Wisconsin Education Communications Board. against us that we have a lot of issues with abuse and suicide that show us as not being the most healthy of communities and I always think of it not just in terms of our culture surviving but really our people surviving <laughs> I didn't learn to speak Ojibwe as a child, but when I started studying it as an adult in college, I quickly realized how much knowledge and capacity there is in a language to know who you are, where you come from, how to see the world in that unique way. It's certainly academically rigorous. It's not just a culture program, it's not just a language program. Ultimately, it's prepping them and building an intellectual framework that they'll be able to apply to and adapt to, no matter where they are in, in the world, that will help them. And I think they're prepared with knowledge and ability that they feel proud of, that they feel connected to their ancestry in a deeper way. They have a much broader and deeper understanding of Ojibwe perspective in relation to the local community, the local environment, and the world. The ways.org, by the way, is a tremendous site for seeing a number of great stories like that talked about in more detail. <clears throat> so in the midst of loss and, and still ongoing grief, many indigenous people are working in numerous ways to repair their communities and bring healing to the earth. 
Individual efforts are important in this, but the crucial work of rebuilding indigenous lifeways is communal. In our region, members of the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi are working together on many fronts to strengthen the fabric of their culture. This was a branch of the Potawatomi that stayed in the region um, during that time of the Trail of Death by becoming farmers and claiming Catholicism. After 150 years of seeming dormancy, federal and state recognition of the Pokagon Band as a federally recognized tribal group in 1994 catalyzed a tremendous period of growth. That acknowledgement opened the doors for the tribe to build and financially support numerous institutions that have led to even more communal growth, including a robust tribal government, their own departments of natural resources, language and culture, among others. Most of this rebuilding effort has been centered on the band's lands, which are near Dwajiak, Michigan, about an hour away from here. To this day, 24 years later, the Pokagon Band remain the only state-recognized tribe that Indiana has, despite the fact that Native Americans live throughout the state. The Pokagon have built housing for their members, especially elders and veterans, and this rebuilding of physical community has further contributed to the rebuilding of their spiritual community. Efforts to revitalize the knowledge and use of the language are growing, and classes in the language are now held throughout the region four nights a week. Summer camps for children and youth focus on developing tribal identity, looking something like the video clip we just saw. The tribe is returning health and vitality to their communally managed lands through active land restoration, using many of the techniques that would be familiar to those of us here on Goshen's campus, including controlled burns of their prairies. And very recently, in 2016, a significant moment occurred as the band once again took legal possession of 166 acres of land in South Bend, the first land that they've come back into legal possession of in Indiana. The band is already working to develop housing and other resources for tribal members on that land to accompany a casino, which they've already opened there. And crucial cultural foundations, such as the clan structure of rights and responsibilities, and social bonding events like powwows are being strengthened and reestablished. How humans address restoration of language, cultures, and the land tells a story of our potential to care for other living things. Repairing the land is a major part of repairing who we are as humans. To address what it means to be human, here's a reading from the Blue River Declaration an ethic of the earth from 2011. This document was created by 25 individuals with backgrounds in ecology, philosophy, fiction, forestry, indigenous wisdom, and literature. Who are we humans? We humans have become who we are through a long process of biological and cultural evolution. As do many other social species, we possess a complex and sometimes contradictory set of possibilities. We are competitive and cooperative, callous and empathetic, destructive and healing, intuitive and rational. Moreover, we are creatures of consciousness, emotion, and imagination, beings through whom the universe has evolved the capacity to celebrate its own beauty and explore its own meaning in the languages of science and story. Also from the Blue River Declaration, I'd like to focus on two phrases. First, we are born to care. Caring for the plants, animals, and people of this land is about making connections, and it's about love. The second phrase, we are adaptable and resilient, calls for us to think about how nature, like humans, is complex and contradictory, such as how nature is both vulnerable and resilient. 
To repair the land and humanity, we should know how our plant, animal, and human neighbors respond to adversity, and then consider how we can extend our open hands for guidance and open hearts for compassion when we are called to do so. To reflect on nature's resilience, we can take a closer look at our native plant kin, the prairie dock, big bluestem grass, and goldenrod, all which are found in the prairies at Mary Lee. So the prairie dock plant, uh, it stands about 10 feet tall. This is the tallest plant that I've seen at the Mary Lee Kesslane Meadow. And it has uh, yellow flowers on top. In addition, it has these large heart-shaped or oval-shaped leaves that grow 18 inches in length. It is resistant to drought and insects. And it has a deep taproot that even a, a new prairie dock two inches tall has a taproot that is one foot deep into the soil. Next we, have the, oh, next we have the big blue stem, and it has these beautiful purple and blue colorations, and it has a, the arrangements of the seeds come into a shape of a turkey's foot. And then it is well adapted, root system helps with soil erosion as well as wind erosion. Similar to the prairie dock, the roots extend 10 feet below the soil, but also has rhizomes that extend horizontally below the soil surface, so that when there is a fire, the rhizomes create these new seedlings that grow above the soil. And last, we have the goldenrod. This plant is over 100 species, about 120 total, and these are all around the world. And they grow in dry as well as wet soils in forests, open fields, and orchards. The species varies in leaf and flower shape, height, and color, but most cases, these flowers are the typical yellow or golden color. One goldenrod example found at Mary Lee is a tall goldenrod, and it grows in drier soils. Goldenrods have allelopathic compounds or chemicals that suppress the growth of other plants in its area, and this allows the goldenrods to grow in tight clusters in prairies. This genus is attractive to a number of insects, including bees, butterflies, and beetles. Each plant in the prairie has a name, a story, and a desire to be connected to other living things. These prairie plants model resilience and how people can repair the land and humanity by growing deep roots and adapting to changing environments. They teach us how in knowing both beauty and vulnerability of our living neighbors, we make connections to the earth. Hi, uh, I'm Erica. Um, I want to thank you all for coming to this and for us being together today to learn and to reflect and lament and hope. Um, I want to share another excerpt um, from Robin Wall Kimmerer's book titled The Honorable Harvest um, to just give us some questions as we move forward. Um, she says, how do we consume in a way that does justice to the lives that we take? In our oldest stories, we are reminded that this was a question of profound concern for our ancestors. When we rely deeply on other lives, there is an urgency to protect them. Our ancestors, who had so few material possessions, devoted a great deal of attention to this question. While we are drowning in possessions, scarcely give it a thought. The need to resolve the inescapable tension between honoring life around us and taking it in order to live is part of being human. 
The teachings tell us that a harvest is made honorable by what you give in return for what you take. It contains a deep respect for the way the world works, for the connection between us, the flowing of life into life. We need acts of restoration, not only for polluted waters and degraded lands, but also for our relationships, our relationships to the world and each other. We need to restore honor to the way we live so that when we walk through the world, we don't have to advert our eyes with shame so that we can hold our heads up high and receive the respectful acknowledgement of the rest of the earth's beings. Forty minutes doesn't seem like time enough to begin to do this justice. But we hope that this has prompted some thoughts for you. We'd be happy to talk with anybody who wants to hang out for a little bit afterwards. May you all go from here this morning more curious than before, more inspired to seek the deep beauty in this place, and more committed to deepening relationships with all of those you encounter. This is truly a life's work. Let's get started. <laughs>